We now move on to the second part of the, uh, the American story with Peter Jacob. Um, Peter Jacob is, is chairman of the Aeronautics Division at the National Air, Air and Space Museum at the Smithsonian. He's been with the Smithsonian for about 20 years. He holds various degrees, including a doctorate in American history from Rutgers University, and he's authored numerous books and papers on historical matters to do with aviation. Um, I asked him just before we reconvened whether he was happy about the setup here and was he all right about immediately following on from Dick Hallian? And he said, yes, I like to follow on from Dick Hallian because I can put his mistakes right. <laughs> so so, so we, 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 hear, we, we observe here the normal process of greetings between experts. That is, you know, they, they, uh, they love to have a little, uh, a little fire and a, a little edge in their relationships. Peter Jacob, please. Well, thank you. I hope I've turned on the microphone and you can all hear me well. Um, the other common experience I have with following Dick Hallian as a speaker is that I'm used to Dick taking more time than he's allotted. So I appreciate the indulgence of the chairman to uh, extend our lunch hour a little bit later so I can uh, get the full, the full offering that uh, you have for me to speak. Uh, but let me echo Dick's appreciation for uh, having you uh, invite uh, uh, two Americans over here to the Royal Aeronautical Society to share a few of our thoughts about the invention of the airplane in the centennial year. Uh, I, uh, uh, unlike Dick, I've got some slides here, and I always uh, bring my slides because uh, the standard definition of an expert is someone from out of town with slides. So if I'm to be uh, characterized as a Wright Brothers expert, uh, I have to have my slides with me. Uh, well, I'm also the lucky person that gets to talk about uh, what the Wright brothers actually did, the invention of the airplane. Uh, I get to sort of uh, focus on the, the star attraction uh, of the day, which is, uh, which is my pleasure to do. And uh, before you here are the stars of the show. That's Wilbur and Orville Wright. That is uh, uh, Wilbur on your left, Orville on the right there. And uh, Dick said a few things about their background and so forth. And uh, one of the few things I'll first disagree with Dick on a little bit is uh, he mentioned that their father was a rather rigid, unbending, uh, itinerant minister from a small Midwestern Protestant church. Uh, that's a rather uh, uncharitable characterization of the bishop. Um, yes, he was those things in some, in some measure, uh, but he was also an enormously progressive thinker. Uh, he uh, uh, was along with his wife, were uh, participating in many of the great uh, social movements of the era. He was a great advocate of women's rights. Uh, he was an abolitionist uh, and many of the great social causes of the time period. And this, along with uh, the Wright brothers' mother's uh, technical acumen, she was uh, the daughter of a carriage maker and uh, played in his shop as a, as a young girl. And uh, as, a, as an adult in the family home, she repaired the household tools and uh, she made toys for the boys, that kind of thing. 
But they created this rather uh, exciting environment where Wilbur and Orville Wright were allowed to pursue their interests. Uh, they were, it was a very uh, conducive environment to, uh, to thinking and, and education and uh, a broad, uh, broad interest in lots of topics. Uh, so I'd just like to modify Dick's characterization of, of the, the patriarch of the Wright family as uh, uh, yielding and unbending in church matters, but uh, quite open-minded and flexible in uh, matters of intellect and, and intellectual crea creativity and curiosity. Uh, this is my favorite photograph of Wilbur and Orville Wright because it says a great deal about the boys as they were often referred to by family and friends. Uh, we tend to think of the Wright brothers as a corporate entity, the Wright brothers, and in fact Wilbur and Orville fostered that reputation to some degree uh, themselves. If you look at the canceled checks from their businesses, uh, they often signed them simply the Wright brothers rather than one brother or the other. Uh, but in fact, they were different people, and they brought different things to the solution of the of the airplane. If you look at Wilbur there on the left, uh, he's kind of you know slouching in a in a gray suit, uh, kind of looking sad, not really looking at the camera, uh, kind of uh, off off daydreaming a little bit there. You look at uh, Orville on the right, back straight, sitting up straight, looking right in the camera, confident and determined. Uh, wearing a really uh, fine suit and flashy socks there and so forth. Um, Orville's always my favorite because of his interest in fashion and clothing. Uh, being the son of a European-trained uh, fashion designer, I've always had an interest in that. And so uh, people often ask me, well, which of the boys did you admire more? And they always think I'm going to answer because of some technical achievement they had. But I always admire Orville better just because of his clothes. <laughs> But in any event, uh, they, they were different individuals, and they brought different things uh, to the problem. Uh, there were two older uh, Wright brothers, Ruslan Wright and Lauren Wright. Uh, and as gr kids growing up, Wilbur, the older brother, they were four years apart. Uh, Wilbur was much closer to the older brothers, and Orville was much closer to their younger sister, Catherine Wright. They had a, a sister who was three years younger than Orville. Uh, the two older brothers, uh, married, had families, tried to make, make it on their own. And Dick uh, uh, alluded to this to some degree. Uh, why did Wilbur and Orville Wright, uh, why were they lifelong bachelors? Why did they remain in the home? Why, why did they not strike out on their own as they were coming of age? And part of the reason had to do with the fact that they were coming of age in uh, a period of great economic hardship. Uh, in the United States, you know, we refer to the Great Depression of the 1930s. But before the 1930s, when in the United States you referred to the Great Depression, you were talking about the Great Depression of the 1890s. Both the older brothers had difficulty making it, uh, uh, tried various trades and activities, farming. Uh, uh, one of the older brothers became a bookkeeper. Uh, and Wilbur and Orville uh, saw that uh, they were having difficulty making it. It was hard economic times. Uh, and Wilbur in particular saw this. Uh, he had an interest in following his father's footsteps as an itinerant minister and even uh, contemplated attending uh, Yale Divinity School uh, to, to get his degree, uh, but suffered uh, an unusual accident in the mid-1880s. Uh, he was playing a kind of an ice hockey type of game. He was hit in the face with a stick, lost some teeth, and uh, developed some rather mysterious complications. It's never quite been clear in the record exactly what these complications were. But the effect of them were to sort of cause him to, to give up on life a little bit. Uh, he uh, uh, became uh, uh, reclusive and, and very uh, uh, quiet, uh, stayed out of uh, uh, social matters uh, during this period. Uh, he gave up his plans to go to college. 
His mother, their, the brother's mother, was uh, ill with tuberculosis in this period and lingered for uh, several years. He cared for her in her declining years until she died in 1889. And it was during that period of this sort of the, the lost years of Wilbur that he loses his connection with the two older brothers and starts to develop this connection with the younger brother, Orville, who was now uh, uh, becoming of age and growing up and so forth. And it's in this period that you start to see this relationship between Wilbur and Orville that was really quite conducive to their creative work. Orville, uh, unlike uh, Wilbur, was kind of one of these kids that was always getting into things, you know, taking things apart and experimenting and trying things and never really focused on one thing or other, but just kind of running about and trying different things. But one of the things that he got very interested in was printing technology. And in fact, he wanted to develop a career as a printer. And to uh, uh, facilitate this interest, uh, among other things, uh, he started with uh, a friend, a friend called Ed Sines, a local Dayton friend, a newspaper, a couple of local newspapers. And Wilbur, uh, in this period of his lost years, who was interested in writing and so forth, uh, joined the group as an editor of the newspaper and started to combine forces with Orville on this, on this project. And it's in this time that they start to their professional life together. And uh, some members of the audience and Dick talked about the role of bicycles. The 1890s, uh, again, I'll offer my little caveat to Dick and, uh, and giving my hat to our European guests here. Um, the the, the so-called bicycle craze, the, the great interest in the bicycle, was not so much because of what was going on in the United States, but it was because of the invention of the so-called safety bicycle, the, the bicycle with two wheels the same size. Uh, prior to this time, the, the so-called um, uh, high, wheel, uh, high wheel bicycle or the ordinary I think they call it the penny farthing in, uh, in, uh, in the UK here, uh, with the uh, large front wheel and small back wheel. And, and that bicycle, the, the ordinary, the, the penny farthing, was really something, uh, sort of the realm of acrobats. You know, it was kind of a measure of your athletic ability if you could ride one of these things. But with the safety bicycle, with the two wheels the same size, this opened up the, uh, the world of the bicycle for the casual rider, the casual user, and uh, both men and women. This was actually kind of a significant history point in history for, for women in that it gave women one of the first opportunities to have individual mobility, that women were riding bicycles and could, uh, you know, take off on, a, on, a, on a, a ride on their own and so forth. And there's, there's a little sort of women's history in the story of the bicycle there. Uh, but uh, the Wright brothers uh, were, um, uh, got interested in this field right around this time of this change in the technology. Orville, in particular, uh, was very interested in bicycles. He became uh, fascinated with racing bicycles. He was uh, uh, referred to by the local uh, folks as a scorcher, that Orville was a real scorcher, and he won some medals in races. Wilbur also gained some interest, but he enjoyed country rides a little bit more. So it was in this period that uh, you have sort of a change in the family dynamic and the personalities of the Wright brothers and this forging of the personal uh, connection between the two of them and the emergence of this... Uh, new technology and this new mobility in the form of the bicycle, which created this, this large industry. You know, we talk about uh, uh, the so-called American system of manufacturers of uh, mass-scale production with interchangeable parts and all of that sort of thing, uh, and beginning that with firearms in the United States and uh, the sewing machine. And bicycles was the other very early technology that, that uh, enabled this to happen. So. Uh, why did the Wright brothers get into bicycles was the question. Uh, because it was kind of the, the business of the day. They had an interest in it, and there was a market. There was an opportunity. So they opened their first bicycle shop in uh, uh, early 1893. And by 1896, they're manufacturing their own bicycles for sale. 
uh, and were having uh, quite, a, quite a nice livelihood, quite a nice living. Uh, they, uh, Wilbur had kind of come out of his funk uh, by this time, and uh, the close relationship with the two brothers uh, was formed. So that's a little bit uh, uh, fleshing out some of Dick's comments with regard to the family, that family really was significant to the Wright brothers. Their, their family setting and, and where they came up uh, and what the influences of the family were to cr make them creative people are a really significant part of this story. Okay, so uh, so much for the personal side. Let's talk a little bit about engineering here and, and design, which is, I think, sort of more the, the meat of uh, interest for a lot of the members of the audience here. Uh, Wilbur and Orville Wright always pointed to the year 1896 as the year that they got interested in flight when they talked about it after they had done so, uh, which is a little bit vague. But they point to 19, 1896 because that was the year that Otto Lilienthal, the great uh, German glider pioneer that you've heard about earlier this morning, uh, was killed in, in a crash in his, in his glider. This is another great shot of one of Lilienthal's gliders. He made approximately 2,000 flights between 1891 and 1896 with gliders like this. And uh, most of the flights were 10 to 15 seconds in duration, about 1,000 meters in distance. Uh, so he was truly flying. And this was also coincident at the time where photography started to appear in newspapers and magazines and other publications more frequently. So people were seeing Lilienthal fly. And that had a powerful psychological impact on changing the notion of was this a, a possible uh, thing to pursue. Uh, other speakers have talked about the emergence of the uh, professional engineering community surrounding aeronautics. Dick talked about uh, uh, professional meetings that were uh, beginning to emerge and talk about this. But there was also a powerful psychological thing. You could see this guy flying. These are photographs. This, this guy is in the air. He's flying. And that was no small measure uh, significant uh, in pushing the Wright brothers toward, toward flight. Lilienthal was killed in a, in a crash in 1896. He stalled in, in one of these gliders, crashed, uh, broke his spine, and he died the following day in a, in a Berlin hospital. And uh, just at the, as this was going on, Orville Wright, uh, interestingly, was quite ill. He was stricken with typhoid fever, was in and out of periods of delusion and sickness. And it was during, during this time that Wilbur had read of the death of Lilienthal. And, and they would later talk about how uh, he would share the news of this uh, with Orville in his you know, few lucid moments during this several-week illness. And they would talk about it after Orville recovered. Uh, ironically, Wilbur uh, right, died of typhoid fever in 1912, and who knows what would have happened if uh, Orville had succumbed in 1896. We might not be talking about Wilbur and Orville Wright this afternoon. We might be talking about uh, someone else who had invented the airplane. Uh, one of my other little sidelights about Lilienthal, he always has, I think he has one of the great deathbed uh, lines in, in all of history. Uh, uh, supposedly, when he was and is, uh, dying, his, uh, someone asked him, um, the question, something to the, well, what was all this worth it? Was this airplane thing really worth it? And supposedly his dying words were, sacrifices must be made. And that's, that's what's on his tombstone, which isn't a great, great line. My only other more favorite deathbed line, I always tell this story, uh, is that of Oscar Wilde, who purportedly on his deathbed rose up and said, either that wallpaper goes or I go, and checked out. <laughs> but uh, but Lilienthal's got a pretty good one, too. Uh, so that's the setting. Here, here you have uh, this uh, emerging aeronautical community. Uh, serious engineers are beginning to uh, contemplate this problem, give it credibility. The great Otto Lilienthal is becoming a world-famous figure, and aeronautics uh, uh, is, a, is a topic of interest to the Wright brothers at this point. Now, Wright the Wright brothers did not 
uh, have a strong interest in flight leading to this point. Yes, it's true. Their father brought them a small uh, French helicopter toy in 1878. They dabbled with kites a little bit, but often just moved on to other, other interests uh, when they uh, were finished playing with these toys. Uh, the reason that they become involved with aeronautics has to do largely with Wilbur's interest in trying to find some interesting problem to focus on. I mentioned earlier he had interest in going to college and he was a quite active mind, very, very powerful intellectual, and he was looking for something interesting to work on. And aeronautics seemed to be the, the sort of a virgin field at the time, but it was gaining credibility and interest. And that's in large measure why they, per, they pursue this. And it was really more Wilbur at first. Orville quickly uh, shared his interest, but I think the initial driving force uh, was Wilbur. And among other things, they scoured their own home library and the Dayton Library for information and wrote the famous letter to the Smithsonian Institution. And uh, uh, Dick talked about that. Uh, always at, at, at the Smithsonian, we're always very proud of that letter. We have it in our, in our archives still. Uh, because we get hundreds of letters a month from people writing the Smithsonian saying, can you send me all the information on thus and so or this and that? And uh, this was just another one of those letters. So when we answer our correspondence and we're feeling a little bit, you know, oh, God, here I have to, you know, answer some kid in, you know, the middle of Kansas wants to know about this and that. Uh, you never know when somebody who writes in like that has got to do something great. And we have the, the testament in the Wright Brothers letter. Uh, so we're always uh, very vigilant at the Smithsonian about uh, answering the mail, as it were. Uh, as I say, the Wright brothers uh, uh, began uh, thinking that they were just going to uh, uh, work on this problem. They didn't have a, a desire to, a belief that they were going to invent the airplane. Uh, and they began this literature search. Which brings us to the basic question, uh, I think, of the day. Uh, why Wilbur Norville? Why these two seemingly ordinary bicycle makers from a small, smallish Midwestern city uh, in, uh, in Ohio? Did they invent the airplane when it had defied all these other great experimenters who were working on the problem? And my suggestion, and it's just a suggestion, but uh, I think it's, it bears some, some truth to reality, is that the reason the Wright brothers invented the airplane has to do with their method, their approach to invention. Yes, they were very intelligent people. Yes, they were very capable people. And people talk about the, the terms, you know, these were geniuses and, and they somehow figured it out. But the genius really lies in their approach to invention. And I think that's comprised in a number of elements. They had uh, a series of innate talents, which I'll talk a little bit about, and personality traits that I think were quite important. Uh, and they also approached this as in a strict engineering perspective. The Wright brothers were engineers par excellence. And one of the first things that all engineers do when they're studying a problem is to figure out what everybody else did. And that's what the Wright brothers did. They looked at the literature in the field, and they gathered what they thought were the positive roots that people were focusing on, what they thought were the dead ends. And they had a great ability to kind of size that all up and figure out what the elements uh, need to be solved were. And when they approached the problem, uh, following on the work of Cayley and, and others, uh, yes, you have the three basic elements. You need to come up with some sort of aerodynamics, some sort of lifting structure. You need to come up with some sort of propulsion system. And you need to come up with some sort of means of control. Well, they looked at the problem. They thought, well, uh, Cayley had done some pioneering work, of course, on, on aerodynamics. Uh, Otto Lilienthal had published his famous uh, coefficients of lift and drag and done work on aerodynamics and made these gliders. So the Wright brothers felt there was some foundation to work with there. Uh, this was also the era with the uh, advent of the uh, internal combustion gasoline engine and the, and the development of small 
uh, lightweight power plants, particularly coming out of the automobile industry. So they thought propulsion was an area where there was some work. But the real area which was absent of, of significant research was control. And the Wright brothers were a little surprised at that because it was so obvious to them that control was so important. And here again we get back to the bicycle and uh, others have alluded to this thing. Uh, the prevailing wisdom of the day was that you had to have an inherently stable vehicle, that an aircraft would be too difficult for a human being to manage in the air uh, given the vagaries of the winds and so forth. And you need to have essentially a, a stable environment, stable platform, which you would then steer like a ship or a car or something like that. But the Wright Brothers Association with Bicycles, which, as someone had pointed out, is an entirely unstable machine, uh, but an entirely controllable one, in my view, freed them from this notion. They were familiar with systems like this, and it didn't hinder them from thinking in other ways about controlling the airplane. So that was really kind of a, a key aspect of their conceptual breakthrough in the invention of the airplane. And as I'm sure many of you know, the, the key element of that was their system of wing warping control. And of course today that's manifested in the form of aileron control, but the concept is the same. And the basic concept is differential lift on either side of the aircraft. The Wright brothers recognized that Otto Lilienthal's weight shifting technique of swinging the hips from side to side and fore and aft was a dead end design. Obviously the craft would have to be much smaller than uh, uh, had to be a similar weight and size to the pilot for that to be effective. It would be very difficult to fly a Concorde, for example, with body shifting, I would think. Um, so the Wright brothers recognized to build an aircraft that you would have to be able to carry an engine and a payload and, and maybe someday passengers, uh, you would have to have an aerodynamic means of control. And they reasoned that, well, if you have uh, a greater angle of attack on one side of the aircraft, you'll generate more lift and that side of the wings will lift and will bank the wings. And if you could control that differential and lift, you could control the balance of the, of the wings. They were masters at going from the abstract to the concrete. They were amazingly able to visualize in their mind's eye a conceptual abstract answer to a technical problem and then manipulate that solution around in their mind's eye, bring new information to it from other sources and turn that into a working concrete piece of hardware. And the wing warping lateral control system is a, is a marvelous example of that. They came up with this concept, differential lift on either side. Beautiful. Now, how do we make that work? And they puzzled around with various systems of, of uh, beveling wings with uh, gear systems and so forth. And all of that was just too cumbersome, heavy, difficult to create. And then they hit upon this notion of, of simply twisting the wings or warping the wings. And this is a, a drawing of their first craft. In 1899, they built their first craft. It was a, a five-foot wingspan kite. And the uh, uh, center uh, drawing there is uh, the kite coming at you head on. So it's a biplane structure like the, the one that Dick talked about with the Chinook, uh, the fundamental uh, Chinook uh, truss structure. But they did one thing differently. If you look at this side here, you'll notice right through here, there's nothing. There's no trussing there. What the Wright brothers did was they took out the trussing across the cord of the wing, retained the trussing across the front of the wing, which gave this the rigid uh, biplane structure, but enabled it to be twisted, enabled it to be uh, manipulated, and the lower drawing shows that in a, in a twisted fashion, and they did that with a, a series of lines connected to these uh, sticks, and they could literally twist the wings, warp the wings to change the angle of attack. And this was a, a beautiful idea, and it took that abstract concept and put it into a very elegant, simple mechanical design. They tested this kite in 1899, worked wonderfully, and with that they set about uh, building a full-size glider to test out their ideas. Now they also had to develop a whole series of structural 
uh, designs and, and so forth, and I won't say too much about that. Dick talked about the, the biplane truss uh, design, which is one of the few things that they got from another experimenter uh, through the, the Shinu Herring glider, uh, and that was the, the basic design that you see. Uh, but it was this uh, 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 wing warping system that was really kind of the original idea here. So this is a great example of one of their, their great skills, this conceptual ability. The Wrights then move on to come up with a place to fly their glider. Dick was talking about Kitty Hawk uh, that doesn't look anything like it does now. Well, that's what it looked like in 1900 when the Wright brothers first arrived there uh, with uh, a little tent that they set up to, uh, to live in and conduct their experiments. Uh, looks a little bit uh, forbidding, and it was. Uh, someone asked, why did they pick Kitty Hawk? Well, they had written to the U.S. Weather Bureau and gotten uh, uh, suggestions for a variety of places around the United States to fly. Off the southern coast of California was another one. The mid-Atlantic coast of the United States was another one. And they wrote letters to these various places. And one of the places that wrote back was the sort of leading citizen of this little fishing village at Kitty Hawk, by a guy named William Tate. And he wrote this very warm, welcoming letter to the Wright brothers, saying that this would be a marvelous place to pursue their scientific kite experiments, as he characterized it. And with that, and the easy rail travel down to uh, a railhead in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, not far from the Outer Banks of North Carolina, uh, the Wright brothers selected Kitty Hawk as their, as their test, uh, flight testing center. They had one little flaw, though, in the plan. When they got the information from the Weather Bureau that said there were strong, steady winds, what they didn't realize that those winds were average figures. And what was typically happening at Kitty Hawk, you might have, you know, 100 mile per hour winds one day and nothing the next day. So the Wrights had to contend with this uh, uh, situation where some days they could fly uh, or it would be too windy to fly at all and other days where they couldn't fly because there was no wind. But that was kind of a little bit more detail on, on why they selected Kitty Hawk. And the Wright brothers always kind of saw their uh, time at Kitty Hawk as uh, vacations. They, they saw it as uh, a, a great way to get away from the, the daily routine of their bicycle business. They enjoyed the local people very much and uh, really sort of saw this as uh, a, a, a way to sort of reinvigorate themselves as well as do something interesting with the, with the airplane. They always look back at the years 1900 to 1905, their experimental years, as, as clearly the happiest in their lives. And part of that, a big part of that, was their time spent at Kitty Hawk. Not the, not the most inviting vacation spot to my view, but the brothers, the Wright brothers uh, did, did enjoy it there. This was their first craft, a full-size piloted craft, their glider in 1900. Uh, most people know, of course, about the breakthrough machine in 1903, but uh, they preceded this with a series of three uh, full-size gliders. And you'll notice something very interesting about this first glider. It's in the air, but what's missing? There's no pilot. Uh, Dick talked about this, that uh, in addition to inventing the airplane, one of the other things that the Wright brothers invented was the process of flight testing and incorporating flight test data back into the design, which of course is a, is a, a, a foundation of, of modern aerospace research and development, pioneered uh, in great measure by the Wright brothers. And if you look very closely, you'll see right there and right there two lines. And those are kite lines, and the Wright brothers are flying this craft as a kite. And they always began by flying their craft as a kite, get a little sense of uh, what the aerodynamics were performing like, what the control system was performing like. Then they would fly the kite with a pilot on board, so the pilot could get a little feel for the, for the craft. And then they would make brief, short glides, 
foot or two off the ground incrementally, uh, increasing in distance to uh, get a sense of, of how to uh, maneuver the aircraft. And the other thing that they did that for is because they recognized that they had to learn how to fly, that you simply couldn't just get on an airplane and uh, expect to know how to control it. Again, Dick talked about uh, the, the famous quote from the 1901 uh, Wilbur paper where to, to ride the fractious horse and, and uh, learning to, to fly. The Wright brothers understood that the airplane was a technological system, uh, many, many elements, all of which had to be working in concert, including the pilot. The pilot was part of this technological system, and they recognized that from the outset. So flight testing is just key to the Wright brothers' success. Now you'll notice something else about this glider. Notice to maintain its, uh, uh, its flight, it has to be at a rather high angle of attack. And this is a nice graphic illustration of the really poor lift to drag ratio of this, of this aircraft. It was not uh, producing the amount of lift that the Wright brothers' calculations predicted it should. There was something fundamentally wrong with it. So the Wright brothers go back uh, to their home in Dayton to, to ponder this and decide, well, if it's not generating the amount of lift we think it should, we'll simply just make it bigger. This glider uh, had a 17-foot wingspan. The next glider they built is somewhat larger, and uh, they thought increasing the wing area might be a way to solve that. That's Orville there uh, on the left. You can get a sense of the size of the craft uh, next to Orville. And notice, here in this desolate Kitty Hawk environment, the brothers always wearing uh, business clothes, tie, stiff collar, cap, uh, always, uh, always in business attire wherever they were going. Uh, another clothing reference, please indulge me. And uh, uh, here is a, a, a nice illustration of the second glider in 1901. You can see this is how the Wright brothers uh, began their flight testing. They would have a helper on each side, uh, getting the glider going. The pilot lay prone. You'll notice that uh, uh, if you look at Lilienthal and Chanute and the others, uh, their pilots were vertical. Uh, the Wright brothers, uh, again, from their bicycle experience, understood something about wind resistance and uh, felt that the prone position uh, would contribute to a, a better uh, flow of air and, and lack of uh, resistance. So they flew their gliders in the prone position. Still, this glider um, had problems. It did not generate the amount of lift that the Wright brothers expected it should. It also started to uh, evidence problems with their control system. The, the wing warping control system worked very, very well in 1900, uh, but by 1901, when they were starting to make more extended glides, uh, problems emerged. And at this point is, you would consider the nadir of the Wright brothers' work. They almost give up. The experiments at Kitty Hawk in 1901, although they made substantial glides, were not at all what they expected. Uh, it was raining, it was miserable. Wilbur caught a cold and on the train ride home uh, to Dayton uh, supposedly uh, said something to the effect uh, to his brother Orville, man will not fly in 50 years. Now whether he actually said that is, is it's hard to know. Orville related that story many years later to a, to a biographer, uh, but clearly it does ref reflect the sentiment. The Wright brothers were just a, uh, a little bit uh, uh, befuddled about what was wrong with their craft and really weren't sure where to turn at this point. But in true right fashion, uh, they uh, weren't disappointed very long. Uh, they got home, Orville got Wilbur got over his cold, and started thinking about the problems again. And they looked at how they were designing the airplane, and they recognized that all the factors that they had considered, except for one, were things that they could measure directly. They could measure the wing area of the craft. They could measure the wind speed that they were uh, at Kitty Hawk. They could measure the weight of the craft. All of these were things they could gather by direct measurement. The one thing which they couldn't measure directly, at least not yet, 
were the coefficients of lift and drag. And these were the very bits of data that they had borrowed from Lilienthal. And of course, the Smeaton, Smeaton coefficient, as someone made reference to earlier, uh, was the other factor that they were using that it was borrowed from someone else, the incorrect Smeaton coefficient. And the Wright brothers, um, through the course of their aerodynamic research, uh, correct that figure to uh, the appropriate value. Uh, but the, equally important, perhaps more important, was their method of determining accurate coefficients of lift. Now, how did they do that? Being bicycle makers, they had some bicycle components at hand, and they first created this, this contraption. It's a bicycle, uh, of course, and on the top of it is a, a bicycle wheel, a free-spinning bicycle wheel. And on one side, on one side here is just simply a flat plate, flat plate mounted on here. On this side is a little model wing shape, and you can, if you look carefully, you can see the curvature here. It's a little wing shape, okay? And what the Wright brothers reasoned was, well, okay, if we could measure uh, the force of the resistance on the flat plate, of the wind flow hitting the flat plate, and balance, that's the term they used, balance that against the, the, the wing flow, wind flow on the model wing, in other words, the resultant aerodynamic force working on the wing against the pressure being exerted on the flat plate, this free-spinning wheel would take up an equilibrium position at some point based on the aerodynamics of the wing, and they could measure that, and different wings would take up different places. And they felt, well, if they could uh, uh, calculate the, uh, the coefficient of lift based on these small model wings, they could do a range of them, gain insight into uh, all different sorts of shapes, and develop one which was the most appropriate for the type and size of airplane they wanted to fly. There's one problem with this device. It's very difficult to get a nice, even, steady flow of wind with this thing. You know, they pedal this thing down the streets of Dayton and try to generate a flow. Uh, but they, it was very important to get a steady flow of air, and they were difficulty getting accurate results with this thing. So they took the concept, the concept of balancing forces, and translated that into the wind tunnel. Now, uh, as others have pointed out, uh, the Wright brothers did not invent the wind tunnel. Uh, typically credited uh, as the first true wind tunnel in 1871, John Browning and Francis Wenham. Uh, there were as many as a dozen tunnels uh, created uh, between that one and the Wright Brothers Tunnel. But most, if not all, of these earlier tunnels really were very qualitative in nature. They, uh, experimenters typically would put a surface inside and uh, just qualitatively see what the reaction was. But what made the Wright Brothers Tunnel the breakthrough tunnel were the instruments, were the, uh, it was just a simple wooden box with a fan on it here, but what was crucial were the instruments. This notion of balancing forces and being able to directly measure the coefficients of lift and drag, gather a, a, a term that was directly needed in the lift and drag equations to actually design an airplane. And this is a, a, a reproduction, a photograph of a reproduction of the Wright Brothers wind tunnel lift balance. Uh, again, the same uh, idea. Rather than a flat plate, they, they broke up the flat plate into these four little resistance fingers, as they called them. And then this is the wing shape up here. And the flow of air would come, you would be the flow of air coming at the, at the device. Would, the pressure on the flat plates here on the, on the resistance fingers would be balanced against the uh, resultant aerodynamic force on the wing. This was a, a, a series of pivoting tiers here. The balance would move, take up an equilibrium position, trace out an angle on the reading down here. And with a simple reduction of the data, they could get the coefficients of lift and drag. Lift, lift with this instrument, uh, drag with a similar instrument. This is a, the drag instrument. And 
gather their own data. Now, this was a marvelously efficient way to do that because they could make these little wing shapes. They're only about six inches long and test many, many different shapes to get a whole range of data. Lilienthal only had data for one shape, the, the, the one in 12 perfect dark curvature. Uh, but the Wrights were able to test a whole variety of those. And when you're thinking about the Wright brothers and the invention of the airplane, the critical thing is that not just the aircraft itself, but the wind tunnel, the instruments that they developed, are really the other half of the invention. And I often talk about, well, what was important about the Wright brothers was not so much that they got an airplane off the ground first, which they did, but they really pioneered the, the modern practice of aeronautical engineering. The use of the wind tunnel, the way the Wright brothers used it to directly design an aircraft, was a breakthrough. And pairing that with the flight testing approach really were sort of the two of the, the two of the pillars of the foundation of uh, modern aerospace engineering, and really should be credited with that. So when we look at the legacy of the Wright brothers, a hundred years on from the first flight, it's really that they developed this practice of aerospace engineering. Of course, today you know there are many more terms in the equation, you know, skin friction and temperature and all of these kinds of things. But if we're Norval Wright were to walk into a modern uh, aerospace engineering lab, they would not be baffled by the fundamental approach to to aircraft design today because it's very much uh, in rudimentary form what they did. The Wright brothers then using this uh, uh, data that they get gathered with their wind tunnel built the third and final glider. This is it, the 1902 glider. Again, test flying as a kite. And you'll notice that this glider has a very, a much more favorable uh, angle of attack, which is a nice graphic illustration, illustration of the much more favorable lift to drag ratio of this craft based on the wind tunnel work. And with this craft, the Wright brothers really do invent the airplane. They have solved all the aerodynamic problems. Their control system, uh, they perfected their control system by adding the rudder and some other modifications. Uh, the structural design was sound. And it's at this point there's a critical turning point in their attitude. They no longer think that they're simply going to add to the invention of the airplane. They know they are going to invent the airplane, and they know they're going to fly. Based on uh, flight experience with this aircraft, here's some shots of it. Again, flight testing. Uh, here's a great shot of it in, in flight. Uh, you can see it here with the wing warping action. Uh, they set about to build their powered airplane. The critical thing about the invention of the powered airplane was less the engine, which, uh, although they did design it with the help of their uh, mechanic in their shop, Charles Taylor, uh, but it was fairly crude engine even for the standards of the day, but it was the propellers. The Wright brothers pioneered the modern propeller, and this is another example of their ability to go from the abstract to the concrete. They uh, conceptualized the propeller as a rotating wing. If you think about a wing coming at you, a uh, flow of air over it, you get a vertical lift force, you turn that wing on its side, spin it to generate the flow, and you get a horizontal force or a thrust force. And they took this basic concept and developed the modern aeronautical propeller, aerodynamically based propeller. Now, it took a lot of refining to get it precisely quite right to, uh, to, to fit it on the airplane, but that's the basic concept. So with that uh, propeller design, the engine design, uh, building of the aircraft, they are ready to fly in the fall of 1903. They go down to Kitty Hawk in September. Uh, they by now have erected a, a hangar down there, and you see the completed airplane ready to go. They had uh, a series of problems with the propeller shafts and chain sprockets and so forth, the teething problems with the transmission system. But by uh, December, uh, they're ready to go, and the airplane is uh, perched there, ready to make its first attempt on December 14th, 1903. The brothers flip a coin to see who will fly first. Wilbur wins the toss. 
gets on board the airplane first, uh, makes the, the first attempt, although it was unsuccessful. The, the aircraft stalled on takeoff, was only in the air a couple of seconds, damaged the forward elevator there. Uh, three days later, the aircraft was repaired. And you've all seen the famous photograph of the moment of liftoff, the, the so-called Eureka moment, the first moment of invention, 10.35 AM, December 4, 17, 1903. Orville on, on board the airplane now. It was his turn to fly. Wilbur trailing behind there, and uh, the aerial age was born. They made only three more flights with this aircraft, uh, alternating as pilots. Uh, Wilbur made the second flight, uh, similar distance. It was only about 120 feet, 12 seconds on the first flight, similar for the second flight. Third flight, this is the only other photograph of the Wright Brothers airplane in the air. This is at the end of the third flight with Orville at the controls, about 200 feet in distance. But then the clincher, the fourth flight, the last flight. 852 feet, 59 seconds, and you can see the launching rail is uh, here, and the aircraft right out here. And this is the one that truly demonstrated the airplane flew. It was under sustained flight for a significant period of time, clearly under the full control of the pilot, and it was a, it was a true flight. The Wright brothers uh, intended to uh, fly uh, further with that airplane, but after the end of the fourth flight, a gust of wind came across the dunes, picked up the airplane, cartwheeled it across the dunes, badly damaged it, and they were not able to fly it any longer. They packed it up, sent this telegram home, the famous telegram, that they were successful to their family in Ohio, and uh, returned to, to, to Dayton, Ohio. Now, the Wright brothers recognized that this was not the end of the story. Simple straight-line flights were not enough. They recognized that they would have to have what they referred to as a machine of practical utility. And in 1904, 1905, refined their design. This is the 1904, and the 1904 airplane in flight. And then finally, with 1905, they had an airplane which was a true practical airplane, an airplane which they could uh, take off, fly circles, basically stay aloft as long as the fuel supply lasted. And uh, with that, concluded their experimental uh, work. And with that, I'll conclude my remarks. Thank you very much.